There we go. Okay. Daniel chapter 12. Let's, uh, let's begin by reading verse 2. Uh, we'll remember that last week we discussed that we have this continuation of the same prophecy in Daniel. Um, we looked at uh, the tribulation period and some of those things that are going to happen specifically to Israel, that being a refinement. And we took that opportunity to make application to ourselves as believers that, that God is refining us. And so um, in, in verse 2, we continue with that thought. This is obviously in the context of uh, God's people, Israel, specifically, uh, though there are definitely applications for us this morning, and we're going to talk about those. Verse 2, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we have the promise of resurrection at the end of time. This was and is still the hope of Israel. This is something that is uh, throughout the Old Testament, it's something that we find in the New Testament, confirmed. Um, and here it is specifically stated for you and I uh, this morning. Now, there are those that will take that and, and they'll make it a metaphor uh, for the national uh, resurrection, reestablishment of Israel, that being a, a becoming a political entity again and all those kinds of things. Uh, but to do so, we have to make it a metaphor. Uh, and if we just read it, the natural uh, inclination would be that those who are asleep in the dust of the earth are coming to awake, and some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The, the resurrection here is a statement of total renewal. This is something that, um, that, that is the hope of Israel, and not only the Israel, but for you and I. So in Job, let's look there. Now, Job as we turn to the book of Job, uh, is very likely one of the oldest books in Scripture. Uh, there, are, there is evidence here that, that would uh, infer that it was written shortly after the flood uh, or, or not too long after the flood. Uh, but that being the case, uh, and, and that being a result of or that evidence being the, uh, the effect of the worldwide flood would, the expected effect of the worldwide flood would have on the climate. And, and the very likelihood that a couple hundred years after the flood, there would be an ice age. And we read descriptions of an ice age here in the book of Job. And so uh, there is some evidence to that ex extent. We don't really know when Job was written. Uh, doesn't give us a date, doesn't give us a time, doesn't even really give us an author. But here it is. Okay. It, it, many scholars agree that it's one of the oldest books, and I bring that up only to say that as we're looking at uh, uh, Scripture and we're looking at the idea that uh, the, the Old Testament teaches the resurrection, that here it is in one of these very old books. Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27 Job, in those discussions with his friends, says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, there's a clear description here of not just a spiritual application, but a physical resurrection. 
Job makes it very clear. He knows that his Redeemer lives. Now, that's an interesting phrase from an Old Testament standpoint. My Redeemer, that which was promised by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that the Redeemer of not only mankind, but of all of creation. I know that my Redeemer lives. It isn't said or established as a prophetic statement, yet here it is with some of that thought when we have the context of the rest of Scripture there. We look at it and think, man, this, there's something here. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. So not only do we have this understanding that the Redeemer lives, but he's going to stand in the latter day, in the end of times, on the earth. And as a result of that, though my skin, though my flesh has been destroyed by worms, though I've gone from dust back to dust, Yet in my flesh will I see God. Yet in my flesh will I see God, whom I see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, not some other eyes, but my eyes, though my reins be consumed within me. There's an understanding by Job, uh, looking forward to by Job, of this physical resurrection being brought back from the dead in a physical body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's turn there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look at verse 4. Here we do find a metaphor in some respects, but it's a metaphor of something else looking at the physical resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Now, the, the metaphor that is being applied here, a tabernacle, a tent, is representative of our body. And we groan, uh, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So the groaning, the, the hardship isn't... Uh, isn't, a, isn't a, a hope for death, but a hope for redemption. A looking forward to of renewal, of deliverance from sinfulness, and which is what, in many respects, resurrection is. Turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to discuss that further, but let's look at John chapter 11 for just a moment. John 11, verses 23 through 24. Now, this is uh, the chapter where we find Lazarus dying, and we find Jesus resurrecting him. An interesting thing to point out is that there are many resurrections throughout Scripture. Not only the resurrection of Christ, but we have the resurrection of several individuals, Lazarus being one of them. Uh, it's here, as we read this, Jesus waited three days before he went. To, to go see Mary and Martha and Lazarus after he heard that Lazarus was sick and ailing. And he wants to go to the tomb, and he tells him to open the tomb up. And, you know, the King James phrases it very nice. He says, Lord, he stinketh. Here he is. He's laying there, <laughs> dead. He's going to smell. And Jesus says, listen, roll the stone away, and he tells him to come forth. But there's this little scene here in verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, thy brother shall rise again. 
a brother shall rise again. And his response uh, to, to Martha, as she says, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died, which is an expression of faith on her part. But in some respects, it, is, it expresses some of the frustration that we just read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That here is death and the corruption, the result of sin in the world around us, and the grief and the pain and the anguish associated with it. And so in the middle of all that, if you had only been here, Lord, then he wouldn't have died. An expression of faith that Jesus could have healed, that he could have uh, miraculously preserved his life, but also an expression of the hardship associated with sin. And Jesus says, listen, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, and, and I want you to notice here that here is a, a Jewish woman in Jesus' day with an expectation and a hope of the resurrection. And Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In the resurrection at the last day. So two things that we can unpack here. Number one, that there is clearly an expectation in the Old Testament of a future resurrection. And the timing of that resurrection, both from Job and here in John chapter 11 and elsewhere in Scripture, Isaiah 26, uh, Ezekiel 37. Uh, we're going to look at some of those briefly this morning. The expectation is that the, uh, the resurrection will be at the end of time. And we want to talk about those things just a little bit because timing is, is a, it's a thing. When it comes to prophecy, when it comes to eschatology, end times, study, it's a thing to consider. So we have the reality in the Old Testament of this looking forward to a resurrection, and not just a spiritual renewal, but a physical resurrection being brought back to life. We find that confirmed in the New Testament. And not only do we see it here and we have this expectation uh, of, of Martha, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, <clears throat> let's begin in verse 29. Now, Jesus is being questioned here, and they're trying to trap him once again. Uh, we have uh, the group, let's see, the Sadducees, and it says in verse 23 specifically, which say there is no resurrection. They don't believe in a resurrection. Okay, so not everyone, this isn't across the board yet, here it is displayed for us in Scripture, but the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, and here they are trying to trap Jesus with this question. And he says, uh, beginning verse 29, after they give this scenario, this, uh, this man dies, his wife goes to his brother, so on and so forth. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus responds, verse 29, he says, uh, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they're neither Mary nor are they given in marriage or as the angels of God in heaven. So Jesus doesn't, Jesus confirms that there is a resurrection coming. He says, you err not knowing the scriptures. And the first thing that he says is that in the resurrection, so therefore Jesus says, listen, the scriptures teach a resurrection. Scriptures teach, teach a resurrection, and you don't understand them because they're not going to be married or given in marriage. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, he says in verse 31, you have not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
He continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't, he wasn't in the past the God of those men. He continues to be the God identified by those people. And the reason he can still be identified by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is because they are still alive in a spiritual sense. And they're looking forward to this resurrection. Jesus is clearly teaching that it is coming. There, there is a resurrection that is coming. And if you look at their response, when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. This is the Sadducees. This is the Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus is confirming to them that there is in fact a resurrection and uses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make that point. And they're astonished at his doctrine. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus speaking, he says, for as the Father, I'm going to begin in verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son of Man, given to the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Okay, dead people don't hear things, but those who are, come, who are coming to life do hear things. God isn't just the God of the living. Uh, and what I mean by that is that those things that are his are his in complete totality. Just as Job said, though worms eat my body, though I've gone back to dust, will not prevent me from responding in the resurrection. So here Jesus is saying, listen, they're going to hear my voice. He's going to execute justice. They shall hear his voice. Those who are there will come back to life. Verse 29, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So we have, again, Jesus confirming the resurrection, and he confirms it with two classes of people, if I can phrase it that way, two groups of people, those who are going to be raised unto, to resur uh, resurrection of life and those who are going to be raised to resurrection of damnation. Of, of their, their destiny is hell. That's the default position that they find themselves in. So here, this New Testament confirmation 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we would be remiss if we didn't go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we discuss resurrection. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out the case that, that, that in fact, the resurrection is probably one of the most significant confirmations of who Jesus Christ was of all time. And he discusses the resurrection at great length uh, even going so far as, well, let's look at it. We're not going to read all of it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also is vain. Okay, so if there can't be a resurrection, if people can't come back from the dead, then Jesus Christ is still laying in the grave over there, and we are of all men most miserable, it would go on to say. So there has to be a resurrection. That, has, that, that is allowed 
Now, there were those who would say, well, that was a special and unique event related only to Jesus Christ. He was, in fact, God. Therefore, when he laid his life down, he could easily pick it back up. Let's look at verse 23. But every man, uh, see, let's, let's start in verse 22. Um, Nope, 21. Let's start in verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, he's the first one to be resurrected. Now, uh, we mentioned Lazarus, and we mentioned other resurrections in, in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament. They didn't last. Those people all died again. And so Jesus Christ still is the first fruits. He's the first one to raise from the dead and remain eternally alive. Okay, so there we have that. He's the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, that's somewhat different when we look in the Old Testament examples, when we look at the expectation of Martha and this physical resurrection, we see it happening at the end of time. We're going to discuss that briefly this morning, but there is a slight difference here. Christ is coming, verse 24. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, that sounds very much like what we've read about in Daniel chapter 11. Jesus Christ putting down all rule, all power, everything put under him. And as it says in verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son of all the Son also himself be subject unto him and put all things under him. There's this idea that Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and reign. And we look at the timing here, we look at the chronology that's laid out. Now it's an inferred chronology, granted. And we have to, we got to be really careful. We infer things. What is explicit constrains what we can imply something to mean. So let's not take it farther than it, than it is. But listen, it says that those who were in Christ, verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, let's see, 23, afterward, they know that are Christ at his coming. All right. The reality of a future resurrection. Let's talk about how, when that happens and how many resurrections there are. When does it happen? Like I said, timing is, is a big thing. And, and as you go through and you study through Scripture, if we don't understand that, first of all, that there's more than one resurrection, then things don't make sense. Because we have these different resurrections happening, and it really convolutes what we read in scripture because we don't realize that there's more than one so we have the resurrection of believers at the catching up of the saints okay we we see that here at christ's coming at his return those who are christ are raised in first corinthians but turn with me to first thessalonians chapter four first thessalonians chapter four And let's look at verses 14 through 17. It says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will, bring, uh, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive 
remain, and the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And it goes on to say in the last verse, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Okay, so we have this description here. Now this is this um, being caught up together with Jesus in the clouds. This is one of those passages where, where we derive the understanding of a rapture, the collecting of God's people who are alive at the beginning of the tribulation period. This is one of the places that we go to and we look at it and we point to and say, well, here it is described. Now, Jesus is coming, but it says that we are caught up into the air to meet him. We, he, he doesn't descend here. He doesn't arrive in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. He doesn't do any of those things at this point. It's not what's being described. Now, this isn't the only place, and we're not going to focus on that so much this morning. And the reason is we're studying through the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel doesn't talk about a rapture. It doesn't lead us to a point where we can conclude that. We can't infer it. We can't imply it upon the book of Daniel because we don't read it there. Now, we, we derive it from other places. Okay. Worst case scenario for us as believers. This is the worst case scenario. We're wrong and there isn't a rapture. We do experience a great tribulation, but we also, in the midst of that, experience the faithfulness of God. We experience the resurrection that is here described or anywhere else described. That's worst case scenario for us. Worst case scenario for the believer is not that bad. Best case for the scenario for the believer, we are removed from all of that. And the reason I say that is because that I would espouse, uh, that that I would hold on to a a rapture and a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture is simply because God says, listen, you as believers are not subject to wrath. Yet here is God's wrath for a period of time on the earth uh, judging the judging the earth, and it specifically called his wrath in the book of Revelation. And to me, that's one of the most convincing points. Now, not everything that I think people point to and look at in the book of Revelation falls into that category, but there is some point in there where that is what's happening, and God specifically tells us that we are spared his wrath. Therefore, I have to conclude that we are not here receiving his wrath. Okay? That's enough about the rapture. There is a resurrection that happens, a catching up uh, in a physical sense um, of those who are his when he comes to get us. Okay, whoever's alive will be caught up, and, and, but the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a description of a resurrection. Now, I suppose that there is some possibility that it's a spiritual catching up. But if we take the normal reading that those who are dead, they rise, it's a resurrection. Okay? When we get to Revelation, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. So that's one resurrection. Revelation chapter 20. 
Let's look at verses 11 through 15, because in Revelation, we find two resurrection events described. Two resurrection events described, and we're going to see that those are very consistent with what we read about in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Okay, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on the throne, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. I'm, I'm pausing to, to read through. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, okay. We're going to read here. Um, and I saw, uh, verse 13, and the sea gave it the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, that's one resurrection. That's at the end. That's at the great white throne judgment. That's at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ here on earth, the millennium, uh, which I'm convinced is a literal event. There it is. It's described in scripture. There, I don't think there's any room or, or need for it to be metaphorical, uh, but there it is. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, there's another resurrection described. If you'll look with me up in verse, beginning in verse uh, 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their, their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So whoever went through that tribulation period and were martyred in that period at the beginning of Christ's thousand-year reign were raised from the dead to rule and reign with him. So we have two resurrections described in Revelation 20, we have one uh, separate from both of those described in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a total of three resurrection events that I can determine based upon Scripture. Now, there is a possibility, and I think it's a very slim possibility, that two of them are the same. But it doesn't change the fact that there's more than one re resurrection. And I really, like I said, I think it's a very slim chance we would have some problems with that interpretation. So we're going to stick with three. Now, this is consistent with what we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And I say that because if we look at, if we go back to Daniel chapter 12, and I read in the King James, obviously, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, more modern translate, I think the ESV translates it a little better. Um, and many of it says many of them, it doesn't say first of all, all of them, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is a true statement, but it's it doesn't convey the, the chronology that is held in the original language. Another way that this can be translated, and like I said, I think the ESV, if I remember right, is a better translation. And it says, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And it says, some to everlasting life. And then it would go on and would say, and those who remained dead, or, or something to that effect, were raised later 
So we have a resurrection of the righteous, and then we have a resurrection of the unrighteous. Now, why would there be a resurrection of the righteous? Well, it's either it's one of two things. Number one, it's those who went through the tribulation period and are resurrected at the beginning of that thousand-year reign of Christ, or it's the resurrection of those who are righteous caught up with Jesus Christ at the rapture. It's one of those two things. In the, in the Hebrew, there is a definite chronological break between the two events. And it doesn't come through in the King James. Like I said, I'm pretty sure the ESV does a better job. There we have it. Now, if we, if we break this down into to broad categories to help understanding, we have a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous. And those happen at different times. The resurrection of the righteous is, ends up separated into two events, one at the rapture and one at the beginning of the millennium. Everyone else is raised at the end at the great right throne judgment to face judgment. Now, you and I, who are found written in the book of life, we don't have, we, we don't stand there. It says, as, as we look at Revelation chapter 20, everyone who wasn't found, that, that's the initial found in the book of life, uh, goes to the lake of fire. That's the initial determination. You're in or you're out. And if you're in, then the rest doesn't apply. But if you're out, we got problems. And the resurrection is, as I said earlier, it was the hope of Israel. They're looking forward to this. And they're not looking forward to it simply because they come back to life. They're looking forward to it because the resurrection that's discussed in the Old Testament is this great white throne resurrection at the end of all times where everything is restored and made new so they're looking for this redemptive purpose of god in its totality and its completeness in hosea chapter 13 for example another old testament reference uh, in regard to uh, the resurrection let's turn there hosea chapter 13 if i can find it There it is. Hosea 13, verse 14. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Here God is making it clear through the prophet Hosea to his people Israel, that, listen, I am going to ransom for you from the power of the grave. No longer will death hold you. There's this looking forward to of resurrection. And it's here in the context of the penalty of death. Right? The soul that sins shall die. We're all sinful. But in Christ, even though there may be a physical death as a result of that, there's an eternal life. And there's this statement of redemption in that. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel 37, this is the valley of the dry bones, right? Ezekiel's brought into this valley in this vision that he's given. This is really a, a description of resurrection. 
Now, there are those who, will, who would make this be a national uh, resurrection, and I suppose that there is some, some merit to that idea, but largely, just look at what it's talking about. This is a, this is a literal resurrection. Ezekiel 37, verse 1, And the hand of the Lord is upon me, and carried me out in, out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were, every, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. These are bones that have been dead a while. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. And he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover your, you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's this description of a body coming back together. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I, when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. I shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. So Ezekiel sees these dry bones. God tells him to prophesy to these bones, come back to life. We see them reconstituted physically, just like Job was expecting to be put back together physically, brought back from the dust, as it were, and made new. Israel is looking forward to this. Not only they're looking forward to a physical resurrection, but they're looking forward to the the rec the the. Uh, the renewal that follows. Here is Israel, and as they are brought back into uh, relationship with God, they're brought back into Jerusalem, they're brought back in, into a place where they are working, where they are His people once again. There's an expectation and a hope that follows the resurrection. Now, it isn't just the hope of Israel, it's the hope of all believers, not, 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 it isn't our final hope, but in some respects, it, uh, in some respects, it is our final hope, <laughs> but it is our hope as well. 
it doesn't just stop at Israel. God promises you and I as believers a physical resurrection and, and deliverance from the bondage of sin and death in a physical sense. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's explore that just a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read some of these verses earlier, so we're going we're gonna to hit them quickly. But verse 20 is where we want to start. Now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Okay, If you're sleeping in this context, you're dead. That's what it means. So Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. First one to remain alive after resurrection. We have this description of how death came to be through Adam as a result of sin. Jump down to verse 23. But every man in his own order. We read this earlier. Christ the first fruits afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Now, if we jump to verse 42, and I realize there's, there's, there's a lot in between there. Verse 42. So also is this the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So we have this description of what's happening here. Uh, and, he, and he makes the parallel between a grain of wheat or a seed, and the human body. What is sown, planted in the grave, in corruption, in sinfulness, in, in that which is uh, destroyed and evil as a result of the consequence of sin on the world around us, of all creation, is raised again in uncorruption. So if we're looking at resurrection, we're, not, we're looking at it not simply in the context of our body being remade, which is very hopeful, isn't it, that we don't have the aches and pains and all of those things associated with our physical breakdown of getting older, of our tabernacle wearing out and wearing thin. But we have this deliverance from the bondage of sin and the effects of it in our life. Raised in uncorruption, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is, uh, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now when we're talking about spiritual here, it's not that we were raised in a spirit body. That's not what's being described. What's being described is the uncorruptible body, that which is consistent. In other words, we've talked about it in the past that our reality is that our life is hid with Christ in the heavenlies. And at the moment that we receive this resurrected body, this spiritual body, no longer do we, is, that separation is gone. Our physical form is no longer subject to the lust of our flesh. Our physical body at that point is united with the reality of who we are in Christ, our spiritual uh, form, so to speak. We look at verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. In 1 John chapter 3, it says that, listen, we are going to be like him when we see him. So we have this corruption, our, our corrupt flesh, corrupted by sin, being raised again in an uncorrupted state, not subject to the consequence of sin, not subject to the penalties uh, of sin, not subject to the lusts of the flesh any longer, 
We get to be as Christ is. We get to walk in that newness of life literally in a physical form. And that gets to be our eternal state. That's how we spend our eternity with Christ. It is a physical body. God gives Daniel this vision, and as he, he puts this together, he sees Israel's hardship and suffering, and he sees their deliverance at the end, and ultimately he sees their renewal at the resurrection. He sees a renewal at the resurrection. Now, there is a lot of discussion amongst biblical scholars about when Israel or Old Testament saints, when they would be resurrected. And they make this distinction because here is Israel, God's people. We find it described here and everywhere that we read about resurrection in the Old Testament, for the most part, is referring to this end of times, great white throne judgment, resurrection. And so they would conclude that uh, Israel is resurrected there, or at the very least, would be resurrected at the beginning of the of Christ's millennial reign at the end of the tribulation. And, and they do that in an effort to keep a distinction between Israel and the church. And, and there is a distinction between Israel and the church. the church. The church doesn't replace Israel. Now, I think that distinction is unnecessary. And the reason I say that is because in Christ, there is one church. There is one uh, family. There is one body. There is one believers or non-believers. And if the means of salvation has always been grace through faith all the way from Abraham forward, then the same faith and the same Redeemer and the same Jesus, whether it's looking back or looking forward, brings us into the same relationship. So I don't know that there needs to be this distinction between that, nor do I think that there necessarily needs to be a lot of discussion about when is Israel raised. If they're part of God's people, they would be raised with God's people. And I don't think that does any disservice to them. The promises that God made are still sure and true for them. He doesn't remove those promises because simply uh, they, they've entered into uh, another body, another unit of New Testament believers. Now, all of this, as we read here, this, this coming together, uh, as he's talking about the resurrection in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 12, he says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they... Uh, they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now, this is ultimately for God's glory. This is the state. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The heavens declare His glory and the firmament His handiwork. That here is the creation that God has made, declaring who He is and what He's done, confirming that. And He says to Daniel, they that shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. In Psalm 19, uh, no, Psalm 19, 1 is what talks, where it talks about 
the heavens declaring his glory and the firmament his handiwork. In Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, it tells us that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So they that shall be wise, in other words, those who will fear the Lord, those who will walk in knowledge of him, shall be as the brightness of the firmament. They shall be those who will declare his glory. Just as the firmament describes who God is, they will be those who declare his glory. Now, we all are image bearers of God. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. We are image bearers of God. So therefore, whether we want to or whether we don't want to, we are reflecting him one way or another. And we can exercise wisdom in that. If we, if we take that knowledge and we suppress it in unrighteousness, then what we find is that we are those uh, described in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that are foolish. We despise wisdom and understand we don't want anything to do with it. Or we can be like the creation of God that we are intended to be declaring his glory to the world around us. This is a reference to those who will share the gospel, those who will come to faith and knowledge of who God is. This is interesting that it's in the context of Israel specifically. Because here they have the truth before them. They have Jesus Christ not only coming in uh, as, as the victor at the triumphal entry and all of those things, but suffering, being resurrected from the dead, confirming who he said he was by resurrecting, coming back to life, and this rejection of him. They have the prophecies from the Old Testament confirming who Jesus was, the miracles that he would do, the, the, the signs and wonders associated with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and yet they choose to take that truth and suppress it in unrighteousness. It isn't just the Gentiles who do that, but, but Israel is spiritually blind. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have this ministry, and just as those who are coming to, those of Israel who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ have the same ministry, this ministry of reconciliation, of coming back to their creator, of coming back to their God who has redeemed them and preserved them as a nation throughout all of history. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God wasn't reconciling people to himself, even Israel, through the sacrifices and the offerings they were bringing. That was an example of what was yet to come in Jesus Christ. It was an example of what he would perfectly fulfill on the cross. Now then, it says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of his to the world around us. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. 
The ultimate reward of the righteous for you and I, for the nation of Israel, doesn't matter who we are, the ultimate reward of the righteous is to honor God and to make him known. Just like the heavens, just like his creation, proclaim who he is and what he's done, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his love, we can declare the same things, both in word and in deed. Turns me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's nice. First Corinthians chapter three. I know that. First Corinthians chapter three. Sorry. Just as there is a, a, a reward being discussed for the righteous who were raised to life. There is a reward for you and I as believers. It doesn't matter if for Israel or outside of Israel. The hope of the resurrection, the promise of reward, and the glory of God are motivators to exercise you and I to the task of personal holiness, of living a life that is consistent with the faith that we have proclaimed. In other words, we can work with the Lord in the transformation of ourselves into the image of Christ but we can work against it. Are we going to be those who are willingly shining the light of the gospel to the world around us in deed and in word? When we talk about repentance on Thursday nights, this is something that sort of was alluded to in that here we are, and whenever we encounter the word of God, when, when, when the Lord by the Spirit would convict us of things that we need to correct, we have a choice at that moment. I can either proclaim who God is and his ways, or I can proclaim that I don't want to have anything to do with that. My response to that conviction, my response to that truth is going to be a source of reward or a source of loss. First Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, laid the foundation and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. There's an exhortation there. Take heed how we build. Take heed how we respond to the conviction of God and his word and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Take heed how we reflect him, how we declare his glory in word and in deed. Take heed how we live and represent. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're all building on the same foundation, and there's no other foundation. There is no other means of righteousness. There is no other name under heaven and earth whereby men might be saved. It starts there. Trust, faith in Jesus Christ is where we begin, and it's where we found ourselves and everything that we do from that point forward in our lives. Now, verse 12, now if any man build their, uh, upon this foundation, Foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. We have materials, different materials to build with. Some are enduring, some are not, some are consumed in the fire. 
And in the end, the reality is for you and I, that no matter when this happens, because maybe it happens earlier in our life, maybe God uses trials, as we talked about last week, to purify us, to burn away some of these unsavory building materials, the hay, wood, and stubble, so that we might have room to rebuild with that humble, repentant heart with those things that we endure. Or maybe this comes at the end of our life when we stand there and, Lord, I wish, and, and, and as I said earlier, we're judged whether we're in the, the book of life or not, ultimately. But there is some judgment for reward for you and I as believers. It's like a chipmunk or a hamster. Right? If you've ever had a hamster, you know that they like to stuff their cheeks full of things, and they can fit an awful lot of stuff in there, and they get both sides, and they're all puffed out, and there it is. Now, you can, as a little hamster, fill your cheeks with rocks, which you can't eat, which don't do anything good for you. They might grind your teeth down a little bit, but that's about all you're, the benefit you're going to get out of it, and they don't taste good. And when you come along to some tasty little morsel that you would like to have and store away, there is no room in your mouth. It's already full. And so something has to happen. Either we've got to give some of that junk up to make room for that which is good, or we have to pass over and lose out on what is good. And it's similar to what's being described here. Those things are either going to burn away, be perish, in the, refinement, in the refining fire of God in our life, therefore making room for us to rebuild with those things that are of value, consistent with who he is, to his honor and to his glory, or we're going to pass over and we're going to lose the reward resulting from that. If any man's work, it says in verse 14, abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall, have, shall receive a reward. There is clearly reward for those things that we do that are consistent with God's purpose, consistent with God's plan, consistent with God's character when they're done for his glory, honor, and praise. There's clearly a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We're not talking about a salvation issue here. We're talking about life issue. What have I done? What, what, what found, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, what have I built with? We have this opportunity to before us, just as Daniel is given this same idea in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. We can declare God's glory. We can make him known in word and in deed. We can, to the world around us, build in such a way that they would see Jesus in every facet of what is being built. Just as those who are wise, just as those who, who know God and make him known, shine as the brightness of the firmament, declaring his glory. And they have to turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Paraphrase. We have this opportunity to build and to, within our lives, pursue holiness, participate in the sanctification process whereby we make Jesus known better and better every day. Because I look more like Jesus every day. Because I reflect Christ and his purpose more every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We praise you, Lord, for your word. I pray that, God, we would uh, find some solace and expectation and hope in the resurrection. Lord, not just the physical uh, being brought back to life, but the bigger picture, Lord, of everything being placed under your feet in subjection to you. Lord, that everything is renewed and made new, separate and apart and free from the corruption of sin, both our physical forms, Lord, and all of your creation. And God, I pray that that, that understanding, that that hope, that looking forward to, Lord, would be a motivator for you, for us here, that we would be those who would seek to honor you in all that we do, to make you known that your glory might shine from each one of us as we know you, as we walk in submission to you. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the relationship that, that, that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, with you, our creator. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can worship you that we can sing adoration and praise to who you are for what you've done, Lord, and may that be the declaration of our lives and of our, of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.